Thinking through salvation, what a great topic. And N.T. Wright just says it like nobody else can. And so when I stumbled across his series, I said, I'm just going to play it for you. So we have four weeks together. We started last week with two of nine messages. Now these are real short. They're just him being personal, sitting in his living room, chatting with us. So today will be our longest session. We have three talks back to back today for part two of this series, all right? So this week we'll be talking about the story of salvation. Next week we'll be talking about just how fallen is creation. I mean, are, are we fallen? Are we in sin? Are we, you know? And how does creation get rescued? And then the last week, final week, why do we need salvation? And why does salvation matter? N.T. Wright, whose full name is Nicholas Thomas Wright, is a prominent theologian, scholar, and author known for his profound contributions to the fields of biblical studies and Christian theology. Born on December 1, 1948, in Morpeth, North Berlin, United Kingdom, Wright's academic career has been marked by a commitment to exploring the historical and theological context of the New Testament and early Christianity. Wright has held several prestigious academic positions, including serving as the Bishop of Durham in the Church of England. He is widely recognized for his rigorous scholarship and his ability to bridge the gap between academic theology and the broader Christian community. His writings, which include numerous books and articles, have had a significant impact on contemporary discussions surrounding Jesus, the resurrection, and the Christian faith. N.T. Wright's work has not only shaped theological discourse, but has also sparked thoughtful dialogue and debate among theologians, clergy, and lay people alike. His dedication to a more comprehensive understanding of the Bible and its implications for Christian belief and practice continues to influence and inspire individuals around the world. So as we look into this second part here in week two, we're going to explore the Bible's salvation narrative from Genesis to Jesus, highlighting the purpose of creation and our div divine vocation. And with that, here's N.T. Wright. In this collection of videos, we're thinking through how we understand and perhaps misunderstand the whole notion of salvation. In this collection of videos, we're looking at the question of salvation in the Bible and what it really means, what the Bible says about it. And in this particular video, I'm going to be talking about the larger biblical story. Most Christians, to my surprise, don't seem to regard the Bible as a single great story. But if you look at the way the book of Revelation ends, it is almost as though the writer is saying, I am finishing off the story which began in what we think of as Genesis chapters 1 and 2. There are so many crossover points between the creation story and the ultimate new creation story. Genesis 1 and 2 is about the creation of a good world which is bipartite. It is a heaven plus earth world and Revelation 21 and 22 is about the new heavens and the new earth. And to reinforce something I said in an earlier video, the crucial thing is that in Revelation 21, the, the, the strap line is not so humans get to go and live with God, but rather the dwelling of God is with humans. That's the direction of travel throughout. And Genesis 1 and 2 is often misunderstood. People have treated it as though it's God creating a world and setting humans a kind of moral examination, which they then fail. Here's a command you've got to keep, and oh no, they break it. And so everything goes wrong thereafter. Well, to be sure, they do break a command. 
But the point is not that it's a moral examination to see whether they're fit to go and live with God. That would be a different sort of creation entirely. The point of that command has to do with God's desire and intention that he would come himself and live with his people as part of his creation. And God's vocation to his people, this is crucial for the whole theme, God's vocation to the human pair in Genesis 1, 26 and following is that they should be his image bearers. They should reflect him into the world and they should reflect the praises of creation back to God. That's what it means to be in the image of God. Now, this means that Genesis 1 and 2 is a project it's not a tableau, it's not a sort of picture you put on the wall and say, doesn't that look nice? It's a project which is the start of something. God is intending that this should develop and grow and that his creation, which is made good but transient, would eventually become the glorious thing which we think of as new creation, as is promised again and again in scripture and as the New Testament writers insist, has been launched properly with Jesus himself and especially, of course, with his resurrection. So that the whole theme is then about the role of the image-bearing humans within this heaven plus earth structure. And as I say that, many people who understand the way that the ancient world worked and the way that temples in the ancient world worked would recognize that what we're talking about is creation as a temple. A temple was a place where people believed heaven and earth would come together so that when you went to the temple, it wasn't as if you were in heaven, God's space. You were actually there. Earth and heaven overlapped and interlocked. Heaven wasn't just a future place where some people might go. It was a place which was meant to go with earth. And in all the temples in the ancient world, except for the one in Jerusalem, at the heart of the temple was an image, an image of the God, so that the power and influence of the God would be made known in the wider world, and so that the wider world would be invited to come and pay homage and offer worship to the one God. So we realize that there in Genesis chapter one, we have a temple, a heaven and earth space called all of creation with at its heart an image the male plus female pair reflecting God into the world, reflecting the adoration and worship and homage of the world back to God. But if that's how the biblical story begins, and actually it's how it ends as well, because in Revelation there is no temple in the new creation because the whole thing is a temple. The new heaven and earth is the temple where God now lives with his people. If that's how the story works, all sorts of things, as we know, go wrong with it. The human pair don't do what God wants them to. They don't reflect his wise stewardship into the world. They try and grab at a sort of life for themselves and are forced to leave this place of bliss and to go out into a world of thorns and thistles. But then comes the crucial moment in the story of the people of God, the story of the purpose of God that when everything has gone horribly wrong, Genesis chapters three through to 11, God calls one man, Abraham, uh, Abraham as he's called then, he gets his full name Abraham later on. And God says to Abraham, in you and in your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is God's promise to get the creational project back on track. One of the rabbis two or three centuries after the time of Jesus put into God's mouth the words, I will make Adam first, and if he goes wrong, I will send Abraham to sort it all out. And that actually summarizes the way the Old Testament works and actually the way the New Testament works as well. Because again and again, the New Testament insists, whether it's Luke or Paul, whether it's John or Matthew, that what is happening in Jesus is the fulfillment of that ancient promise that God made to Abraham. But it doesn't start with a grandiose global project. It doesn't start by saying, Abraham, go around all the world and tell everybody they've got to be saved, and here's how. It starts with God promising Abraham a family and a land. 
Remember, God had said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and look after the garden. Now God says to Abraham, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you and I will give you this land. The land and the family are a pointer towards the larger purpose which God has, a purpose for the human race, a purpose for the whole world. The land itself is like a small working model of God's plan for the whole of creation. And as we see throughout Genesis, again and again, God's people who are carrying forward this purpose, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's thoroughly dysfunctional family themselves, they are deeply flawed human beings, and yet the faithfulness of God to his promise remains, so that even at the end of the book of Genesis, when all sorts of things seem to have gone horribly wrong, there is a wonderful moment of reconciliation, looking ahead to the great achievement of reconciliation, of salvation itself, which comes in the New Testament. So the story is launched as a story about creation, but creation having gone wrong, and then a story of God starting the purpose of putting creation right by establishing his covenant with Abraham. A covenant is an agreement a marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. The covenant here is between God and Abraham with that outward flowing purpose. It's not just that God and Abraham are going to get it together and the rest of the world doesn't matter. The covenant has the purpose, just like the call of Adam and Eve had the purpose. This is the vocation that God's people are to be those through whom he puts his world right. So in the subsequent video, we'll see how that story is taken forward and how the New Testament picks it up and celebrates the fact that the purpose of creation and the purpose of the covenant have now been fulfilled in Jesus and by the Spirit. In a previous video in this series, I talked about the way the whole Bible story is shaped between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, where the strapline is, the dwelling of God is with humans. That's what creation was aimed at all along. God called the human pair to be his image bearers within this heaven plus earth reality. And when humans fail on that vocation, God's whole creation is put out of joint. So it's not just humans who have a problem, it's creation itself. But as the story unfolds, we see that God's purpose to come and dwell with his people remains central despite everything, despite the failure and folly of his people. So at the end of the book of Genesis, we find uh, the family of Abraham, now the family of Jacob, in Egypt, and they become enslaved. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, which follows straight on, there they are, a hundred or more years later, they are enslaved by the Egyptians because God's people, in whose midst God is going to come to dwell, need to know that they are rescued slaves. They haven't just been able to wander into this new situation of having God come and live with them uh, as though they didn't have a care in the world. Everything is determined by the fact that they are the saved people, the rescued people. And indeed, right the way on through, through the whole New Testament, the moment of exodus of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt is the primary model of salvation. It's not just an illustration of a different truth. It's actually about God's intention for his people and for his creation. So the book of Exodus, which is fascinating in itself and often muddles people because you get the, the people being rescued from Egypt, which is very exciting. You get them brought uh, out into the wilderness and they're brought to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain and comes down with the law. That's hugely exciting. And then almost immediately we get into details of the law and people reading that book. And I remember going through this when I was a teenager trying to read through the Bible for myself, being puzzled as to what happened to this nice story that I was so enjoying and the answer is just persevere a bit longer because the reason why God has brought the people out of Egypt the reason why he's given them the law is that he is going to come to dwell in their midst this is not the final salvation but it's a key stage on the way to salvation so Moses on the mountain gets given the pattern of the tabernacle which he is to make which the people are to make with him Aaron is to make 
which is the place where then Exodus chapter 40, God comes to dwell. And once again, we have a heaven plus earth, new creation. The tabernacle is a small working model of new creation, which is where the whole story of salvation, of rescue from Egypt, was always going. That, by the way, is why Exodus is immediately followed by the book we call Leviticus, which is all about the sacrificial system, which functions as a kind of health and safety regulation, because if God is going to come and dwell in the midst, this is never going to be a cozy thing, a casual thing. The people need to know that this is the holy God, the creator, the one who has saved and rescued them. And if he's going to be living in their midst, they need to mind their P's and Q's. They need to know what they're about. And so the story goes on and the people arrive in the promised land. That's a whole other story in itself, of course. And eventually, after many generations, we have King David and King David sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. He wants to build a house for God. And interestingly, God won't let him do it because he's been too violent. He's got blood on his hands. But God says, in effect, that's not a bad idea, but it'll be your son who will do it. But then God says, actually, the real thing is not you building a house for me. God says, I will give you a house. What on earth does he mean? This is Second Samuel 7. He means that when David is long gone, God will raise up his seed after him who will sit on his throne and God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. It's as though God is saying, yes, I do want to come and dwell in your midst, but the way I want to come and dwell in your midst is not in a building of bricks and mortar and timber and stone. I want to come in and as a human being, great David's greater son. It's no surprise that the New Testament writers pick up those promises from 2 Samuel 7, blending them with Psalm 2 and other well-known similar passages to say this is what was finally accomplished in Jesus. But of course, it all goes horribly wrong again, as it was bound to do, because the people to whom the promises were made were themselves part of the problem. We see it in David, we see it in Solomon, we see it in generation after generation. So the temple where God has come to dwell, with 1 Kings 8 being very like Exodus 40, the divine glory coming to dwell there, the people in whose midst God has come to dwell rebel. They commit idolatry. They become wicked and sinful. And then, horror of horrors, God departs. The promise of God rescuing his people and coming to live with them has, as it were, turned inside out because they, like Adam and Eve in the garden, have failed in their vocation. And so, like Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden, the people of God are expelled from the land and they have to go off into exile in Babylon. And the biblical story then is, well, if that's happened, how on earth is salvation now going to happen? And the idea of salvation for Jews of that period, living in Babylon and subsequently, is focused again and again on, we want a new exodus to rescue us from Babylon. But we're in Babylon because we sinned, because we committed idolatry. Therefore, salvation comes to mean forgiveness of sins. Think of that glorious passage in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God has dealt with her sins. And that's not so that Jewish people can, if they believe, go to heaven when they die. It's so that God will come again and dwell in their midst. The mountains will be flattened and the valleys will be filled in and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That's the way the story is working. And so we have this story of creation and covenant, but creation has gone wrong because the human pair failed to do what they were meant to do. The covenant has gone wrong because the covenant people have failed to be the people they were supposed to be. And so the great promises in the prophets of the exilic period and after are looking ahead to a time when God will renew the covenant 
and thereby and therefore will restore creation. This is the meaning of salvation. And we humans who hear this message now, and we'll return to this theme in a subsequent video, we humans are finding ourselves not in some abstract formula, but in the great story from creation to new creation, from covenant to new covenant, the story which has Jesus at its heart, which has the Holy Spirit now as its energizing, salvation-producing drive. In two previous videos in this series, we've been looking at the story of the Bible and the way the story of the Bible holds and showcases the story and meaning of salvation. And we've seen how salvation for the ancient Israelites meant rescue from Egypt and salvation for the ancient Jews at the time of the Babylonian exile meant a new exodus, meaning we'll be able to leave Babylon and go home to where we really belong because the great promises of creation and covenant were focused on the land and the temple because the land and the temple were signposts towards the larger reality. Because God promises again and again in the Old Testament that he will fill the whole earth with his glory, which resonates with the picture of the temple. God fills the temple with his glory as a sign of what he wants to do for the whole earth. Think of Isaiah 11, where the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or the end of Psalm 72, where when the, the coming king has done justice and mercy for the poor and the oppressed, then the whole earth will be full of the glory of the Lord and there are other similar passages. Those are the promises which are then held out before the people. And when we turn to the New Testament, we find again and again the New Testament writers telling the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of those promises. Perhaps the most obvious passage is the opening of John's Gospel, which many of us know only too well because it's read at Christmas carol services in the tradition in which I come from. And speaking as somebody who once upon a time had four children all at different schools and I had to go to four different carol services, by the time you've done that you know quite well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made and so on and so on and so on and then the climax corresponding to the climax of Genesis chapter 1 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and the Greek word for dwelt is the word which means he pitched his tent he set up his tabernacle this is the new Genesis this is the new Exodus Jesus is the place where and the means by which all those purposes of God have suddenly found their yes. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in him. And those purposes of, of creation, of covenant, of new creation and now new covenant find their yes in Jesus. And the story which John's Gospel tells is a story of Jesus as himself, the true temple. He speaks, says John, of the temple of his body all the way through to where Jesus then in his last meal with his disciples speaks about the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit as the promise to them. They will be heaven and earth people. They will be image bearers. They will be, in other words, rescued from everything which has stopped them being the human beings they were made to be. And they will be enabled to be God's new people for his new creation. And so the story of Jesus going to his death, the story of Jesus rising again from the death, are themselves the story of the new exodus, the new covenant, the restoration of God's people. With the forgiveness of sins at its heart, that glorious liberating message, for so many that's what salvation means, the shout of delight that actually all the bad things that I've done constrain and constrict me no more. They're not going to corrupt my future. God has dealt with them. And the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a story of how God has done that in and through Jesus. This is where it's all going. Not, therefore, that we should then be taken away from the world, but that we should be God's people in and for the world. Jesus says in John chapter 20, receive the Holy Spirit as the Father has sent me, so I send you. 
In other words, just as Jesus in John's Gospel is the place where the new temple is set up, the place where the new covenant is happening, so by the Spirit Jesus' followers are to be new covenant people, new creation in themselves and the means of new creation in God's world. Not that it's simply all downhill from there, as though all the people of God have to do from the day of Pentecost onwards is just to do as they're told and the world will steadily turn more and more into utopia, because this is the foretaste of something yet to come, which we see in Revelation 21 and 22, the ultimate new heavens and new earth because between the time of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the second coming of Jesus to put all things right, the church is to be for the world what Jesus was for Israel, which, alas, and we often wish it weren't thus, means suffering, means persecution, means martyrdom. We see in the early Christian writings, think of a book like First Peter, that some early Christians are worried about this. Surely, if we are Jesus' people, we oughtn't now to be facing any problems. If Jesus has dealt with sin and death themselves, why can't we just have an easy life of it? And the answer comes, no. The way to God's future is the same way as it was for Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and be prepared to lose their life in order to save it. That is the way forward. It's the way it's always been. We see that going on in the book we call the Acts of the Apostles. And so the epistles in the New Testament focus particularly on the church as the new temple. Think of the letter to the Ephesians. The church is the place where God himself comes to dwell by the Spirit, so that out of the previously divided humanity, Jews over here, Gentiles over there, God is making one new thing. And in Ephesians, we have the promise in chapter 1 that God's overall purpose always was to unite everything in heaven and on earth in Jesus, in the Messiah, and then in chapter 2, we see that this purpose was meant to flow out into the uniting of the human race in one single worshipping family so that they become a body which grows, says Paul, into a holy temple in the Lord in whom, he says to the puzzled people in uh, the western Turkey of his day, in whom you too are built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is what it means that God was to come and dwell in and with his people as a sign and pointer towards that ultimate reality where the dwelling of God will be with humans so that the church itself is designed to be, and this is the where the story takes us to where we are now, the church is designed to be the small working model of new creation, the pointer to the world that the God who made the world has rescued the world. The God of creation is doing new creation. The God of the covenant has renewed the covenant, has forgiven sins, so that salvation is this great reality which sweeps us up and says all the things you are most afraid of and ultimately death itself. God has dealt with, and you are now called to be collectively, corporately, and individually people who, as they celebrate their salvation, are looking ahead to the time when, as St. Paul says, God will be all in all. That was a mouthful. You see why I wanted to put those three parts together? He really exhaustively covers the story of salvation. All right, some thoughts, questions? We have a microphone, of course, um, so that those watching via live stream can hear your question or your comments. think of is uh, one of the Platter's songs. One of the Potter's 
platters. Platters. Yeah. Hold that closer for me. Yeah, platters. As uh, heaven on earth. As mm -hmm. the, and I, I can't, I don't, I can't, you know, sing it uh, <laughs> word for word. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, when he's talking, you know, about heaven and earth, heaven and earth, and it's uh, it's about they're singing to their their girlfriend, you know, or their mistress, and uh, they're saying, you know, she created a heaven and an earth for him. Mm. But I, all of their songs is, is so close to. A message you get from from the Bible or from uh, God, you know, <laughs> that uh, I just uh, just wanted to make a comment on that. <laughs> it's a love relationship, isn't it? A love relationship. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and and to think that this relationship of redemption has gone all the way back to Genesis. That this was always God's plan to dwell with mankind. It was never that mankind would go to heaven. It was that God would bring heaven to earth. So heaven plus earth, as N.T. says. Heaven plus earth. That was always his plan. That was his plan for creation. Heaven plus earth. We've messed it up, but then God continues bring about redemption and exodus and salvation which is what we're going through have are now in and will be have been saved are being saved will be saved anyone else other questions thoughts jokes <laughs> All right, let's bring up the first question, Jeff, please. I'm going to read it. The video highlights the connection between the creation story in Genesis and the new creation in Revelation, emphasizing the concept of humans as God's image bearers. How does this perspective of humans being created as God's image bearers in a heaven plus earth structure influence our understanding of salvation and our role in God's plan. That's a big mouthful right there. That's a big question. <laughs> All right, I'm monitoring, by the way, I'm monitoring the chat. And so if you're responding via the chat, go ahead and type in your question, your answer. Uh, also, we'll text, we'll check the text messages let's be sure that we don't have and I can't check those so honey you would have to check your text messages be sure we're not receiving anything via text that somebody wants to ask uh, nothing yet he would be in he would be in the chat Well, so if the original design and purpose of God was for you to be an image bearer, and even though we've mucked that up, right, we've not always done a good job of fulfilling that. His, his plan hasn't changed. So we're not trying to become like him. We are him. We're, we're his image bearer. See? I, I'm not trying to be a good person. I'm not. I'm not in and of myself a good person or worthy of heaven or any of that stuff. So I, I quit trying. I am. I am an image bearer. Does that influence the way you think about 
being a Christian, that you're an image bearer, not through something you do or get good enough to do, but because that was his plan and purpose. Jeff lifts that second question up there. This study discusses the role of Abraham's covenant in the larger biblical narrative, framing it as a step towards rectifying the fallen creation and fulfilling God's promise to bless all nations through Abraham's lineage. What can we learn from the faithfulness of God to his promises as demonstrated in this covenant with Abraham? The primary promise, the first promise and the primary promise that God made to Abraham was in you all nations of the earth are going to be blessed fast forward in Jesus all nations of the earth are going to be blessed nobody's left out of that that's not just Christians who claim to be Christian that's all nations that's all peoples Anybody comment? How's that working for you? We call it, one of the words that we use today for this is inclusion. A gospel or good news of including us. Including everybody. So that friend, that neighbor, that family member, and you're coming up here next week on Thanksgiving. Have you ever sat around the table with somebody that it was hard to be around? at Thanksgiving you know what will help you this Thanksgiving is to remember that God doesn't differentiate between people the way that we do and he's not looking at the bad and the good and saying okay well so because you're good you're in and because you're bad you're out you need to change before I'll accept you everybody around your table has the same blessing the same (laughs) I don't know if that went on the mic but somebody said okay (laughs) that's that's such such an honest okay I think all of us probably quietly were thinking through this and saying really okay You may have been hurt at church, but God didn't do it. That's right. (laughs) It's true. We have a couple of other comments here. Okay. Um, Darcy says, although we're part of the problem, we're part of the solution too. Very interesting realization. And Ralph says, God is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipresent that means without limits but someone without limits without form as image bearers we give form to God think think about that now I know it's a little out there in terms of your thought but God's without limits if we're his image bearers and we have limits then we bring into that equation Limits. The only way God is limited is through you and me. And what does Jesus do? Jesus became human. He's not a type of a human. He's not an example of how to live good. Jesus became human and takes the limits off. He, he, he demonstrates heaven plus earth and what it would be like to walk with God without limitation which is why miracles just flowed the supernatural just flowed we wonder well how come it doesn't happen today like it did back then there could be a number of factors there but one of them is Jesus just walked without 
limitation. Not, not without temptation, not without the need to pray and to respond, right? Okay, but he, he just walked in a take the limits off. Not as God, although he was God, he did it as one just surrendered to that person that N.T. is talking about here. Heaven plus earth, image bearers. Love that. Another comment. Well, first of all, uh, P Jeff Peters says, we used to sing that song, Take the Limits Off. Mm -hmm. Haven't sung that in a long time. But anyway, God never stops trying to have a relationship with you or his creation. He never stops trying to have a relationship. Mm -hmm. He never, never, never stops. And I was just thinking about Abraham and the story of Abraham and how God had promised he and Sarah a son. And, you know, 10 years goes by and they're like, well, it hasn't happened yet, so we're going to do this ourselves. I guess we got to get our little fingers involved. And, of course, it's a terrible mess. But they still get the son. I mean, God always, he gives us yes. our promises and he does fulfill them, but it's in his time. And the waiting is the hard part sometimes. We want to, you know, get our little fingers involved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean I have to trust? Okay, back here, Nina. I know I've told you this before, but many, many years ago, you did the two-chair sermon where one person sat in a chair and the other person was God in the other chair and it just showed that no matter even if you turned your back on God he was still sitting right there trying to have a relationship with you mm -hmm. he never leaves you and even during that same part you had one of the people run and you went chasing after him showing that God will chase after you no matter what Ralph adds, excellent, I need to resurrect that sermon. Ralph adds, but still, Jesus had limits. Just think, he had a body, and bodies have limits, giving form to God, something to look at, to recognize, to imitate, as Paul said, imitate me. Yes, and so that's why this beautiful message of salvation takes into view the limits and God pushes through them and says I love you regardless it's not you trying to get to heaven I am bringing heaven to earth and in spite of your limitations your sin your evil your brokenness your covenant breaking I keep covenant <laughs> you know I keep covenant I'm thinking about the two chairs Jeff it's such a beautiful illustration. I'll bring the message out again. Do we have a comment? No, that's the last one I have so far. Anybody else? Questions or comments? So find this one, Jeff. I believe it would be number four. The study, this study discusses how salvation is not merely about forgiveness of sins, but also about the restoration of God's covenant and creation. How does this perspective change your understanding of salvation as a Christian? So we had a hand go up before you asked that question. Well, the Lord is a good, good Father. And, you know, His mercy never ends, you know. And that uh, we could be disappointed in, in our downfalls and our mistakes, but he never will, you know. And that uh, uh, salvation is a, a good thing because we get rid of our, our old sinful self and we turn away from that with salvation and we start a new body and we are... You know, our purpose is to live for Him. Let me ask you all a question. Is salvation something that I have to do? Is salvation something I have to get? No. 
do I have to follow a list of rules? Do I have to attend church? Do I have to follow a particular creed? Or system of believing? Would it be the Pentecostal system, the Lutheran system, the Baptist system, the Catholic system? Which system, because they're all, you know, a bit different, and in some ways some are majorly different from one another. Well, which system of salvation, which system of getting to God or pleasing God and then getting the right to go to heaven is the right system? Or is it about, let's go over here for this question. Nina, let's go over here for this question, please. Over here. Raise your hand, buddy. Oh, okay. She couldn't see you. Yeah. So um, if, if it's not about a particular system of belief or me doing something to be saved, then it goes all of it goes back to that God's original plan for all of creation was to make creation, including humankind, his dwelling place. My question to all of you and those viewing is, is it possible that God would dwell in broken, sinful people? Does God leave? Or does God dwell with and in our brokenness? Bringing exodus, right? You get in the middle of something and God brings exodus. Yes, sir. I think it's, uh, it's God's system and everything is under his system. That, you know, everybody follows under him and he's the top of the system. So... You know, you don't really have to, for the salvation is already there under God, so everybody's divided into different religions and systems, but everything is under God. That's what I think anyway. I wonder if as a parent, thank you for that comment, really great, everybody, great comments, great insights and questions. I wonder if it might be a bit like, and this is crude, there's no way to really give an analogy that describes completely accurately this heaven plus earth and Christ are being our tabernacle and oh by the way as N.T. was wrapping up did you catch this Jesus is the yes to all the promises I don't have to be good enough or respond myself with a yes Jesus is my yes to all the promises but I wonder if in a in an earthly family situation let's say you have your parents and they set up the, the most wonderful loving, giving supportive home that provides for their children in every way but one of the children decides to leave I don't like being under this I, wanna, I want my inheritance, I want out of here I'm going to go make a life for myself. And the parents wisely say, okay, here's your inheritance. Doesn't God have to allow that? It's called freedom of will. We actually have a story in the New Testament that Jesus gave us called the what? The prodigal son. And the father lets the son go. But does the father's love change? Does the father's provision change? Does anything about the household and all that the father has provided for his children change? Is it about the son doing something to get good enough to have all that his father has set up for him? Of course not. And in fact, what happens in that story? Do you remember? The son decides through a set of circumstances, it's too long for me to go into all the details, he's going to turn around and go the other way and he, and he decides, I'm going back home. He's on his way back home and off in the distance, his father's watching because every day his father's looking and watching and he sees him at a distance. And what does the father do? Remember what the passage says? 
the father runs towards the prodigal. <laughs> it's such a beautiful picture of God. And, and Ralph says, first, there are no sins. There's only one sin, not to bear the image, not to reflect God. Thank you. How true. There's one sin. Jesus dealt with that to not be the image bearer God created you to be. So Jesus is and became and was and now through him and in him we are restored to being image bearers. Thus salvation for us is about restoring our awareness of being image bearers. Thank you Ralph, love that. Salvation isn't about something you do to get good enough. Salvation is about the peeling back of the layers of the onion so that we become aware. See that's what happened with the prodigal, wasn't it? He was out feeding slop to pigs as a Jewish young man. The worst thing you could imagine, right? For a Jew to be feeding slop to pigs, right? He comes to himself and runs home, goes home. See, it's revealed. The, the, uh, the layers of the onion are peeled back. And he realized, I'm no longer bearing the image of who I am by nature. He doesn't get saved. He goes back to what he already was. And actually, the father never left it, never changed it. And he actually never left it. He left, but he didn't leave. He left, but he didn't leave. He didn't become something else. He always was. And the image of leaving has one problem. Since we are God, God cannot leave us. The story speaks of our limited thinking in a worldview of being separated by, from God, but God will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen. Amen. Thank you.